0: seems like every time I make a phone call to check a balance or to uh, get service, I'm asked to stay on the line immediately after and you will be given a brief survey. Anybody else get those? Seems like every time I call, I'm getting one of those. And we live in this swipe left culture. Literally everything we do, we're asked to evaluate it. We're constantly judging, rating professors on Rate My Professor, restaurants on Yelp, pressured to heart or thumbs up or emoji, whatever image pops up. Survey after survey, image after image, experience after experience, we are drowning in a sea of our own and others' opinions. And treated as if we don't make our views clear, we have committed some kind of crime. Literally to not have an opinion on something, to not be able to swipe left, swipe right, thumbs up, thumbs down, heart or some other symbol. If we don't do that, it's, it's taken as a shunning in a way of public discourse when you think about it, when you think about that, what we're constantly asked to do is orient ourselves at the center of everything to make our evaluation, our experience, our estimation of the thing, the image, the whatever it is as the thing, the rule with that. And the subtle because it is subtle, but undeniable effect of this is to consistently move ourselves towards the center. It is to make our evaluation, our judgment of any and all things as the thing with that. Now, it turns out, Jesus has some things to say about judging. He has some things to say about how we orient ourselves. And we're going to see that in the text today. So pray with me as we get into the word. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you give us another way to orient ourselves in this world than the direction of our thumbs up or down. Thank you that you offer us something more substantial, more real, more eternal than just our own estimations. But God, we recognize that it is powerful, it is tempting to want to be the center, to need to be the center, and to have our own judgment trump all other judgments. So I ask as we hear your word today that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend, hearts to love and obey what you show us in your word, your holy and inspired and perfect word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church, and it is great to have you with us, whether you're here If physically, whether you're watching on Facebook Live, whether you're listening on the podcast from wherever you may be, we're really glad that you're here. We're going to look today at maybe the most audacious claim that Jesus makes in the entire Bible, the claim to be the ultimate authority of all truth. And we're going to look at maybe the most consequential promise in all of the Bible, Which is that God will supply everything that you need, that that there is nothing that we need corporately, individually, now or ever, that God has not already provided, will provide, and is providing now. These two audacious claims are the foundation of our followership of Jesus, We're going to see as we go through this passage that it reflects what Jesus says in other passages. But at its root, being a follower of Jesus means believing these two things. It means believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and he says he is the ultimate authority in all things. And it also means believing that God loves us and cares for us tangibly in the way that God provides for us. So let's look at the text and see if we can do this. This text from Matthew 7 is kind of a wrapping up. It's, it's the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about how <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount wasn't just a one-time sermon, that this was a talk, and these, the, the, the words and the, and the teaching that's assembled in the Sermon on the Mount was probably something that Jesus repeated often. They were hallmarks of his teaching as he went through. If you look at the learning guide this week, it reminds us of that. And please, use the learning guide. Uh, Ryan Jackson and others have done so much to put into and build this learning guide. Uh, it's an incredibly valuable tool. If you're listening, again, on podcast or on uh, watching on Facebook, you can find those on our website. So let's look. We're starting Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge. Oh, and also we're going to look at this in three sections. We're going we're to take the text this week and look at three specific sections and then make some comments after each one. So starting, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by the standard you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you use will be the measure you receive." Why do you see the speck in your brother's eyes but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there is a beam in your own? You hypocrite, first remove the beam from your own eye, then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, otherwise they will trample them under their feet their feet, and turn around and tear you to pieces." Now, let's stop for a minute. End section one. What is Jesus saying here? What is he claiming? Well, I think what he's doing here is he is challenging us to reorient our affections, our actions, and our affiliations according to these truths. Look, it's hyperbole to say don't judge, okay? We hear this a lot in our society, right? Don't be so judgmental. Jesus told you not to judge. Don't judge. Usually, when someone who's done something wrong and they don't want to be held accountable. I mean, honestly, right? It's usually this verse is thrown in our face when someone is commit, doing an action, living away, uh, has done something, and they don't, want to, they don't want to be responsible for the consequences. And so they'll, well, don't judge with that. And on the surface, it's kind of, I mean, that's what Jesus says, right? But that's why we have to keep reading. That's why we have to understand the context of what's going on. Look, Jesus isn't saying don't ever judge. Don't ever make a value judgment. Don't ever hold anyone accountable for their actions. Don't ever challenge someone as to the decision they've made. He's just saying that you judge wrongly. He's saying that that we're, we're so prone to projection in one sense. We're so prone to putting on others what we are feeling convicted of ourselves. We're so prone to go out there and to mitigate our own guilt or shame by tearing other people down. That's what it means to go after someone for the speck in their eye while I've got a beam in my own eye. It means I am ignoring, diminishing my own choices by concentrating on the actions of others. Now that's a very different thing from never making a value judgment. Look, we all know we have to do that. There's no way we can go through this world without making value judgments, without assigning a right or a wrong to specific behaviors, actions, attitudes. We have to be able to do that. The thing is, how are we going to do that? Who is going to be the authority? This word hypocrite, right? Again, that's a, that's a great accusation thrown at the church, and honestly, a lot of the time, justifiably so. But we have to remember that hypocrite was a dramatic term. It wasn't necessarily a moral term in the time of Jesus. But a hypocrite was merely someone in Greek theater who took a mask and put the mask in front of their face to assume the character of someone else. So literally what Jesus is saying is saying he's saying, when you're doing this, you are assuming the character of someone else. When you judge like this, when you go out looking to judge other people on their behavior while not dealing with your own, while denying your own culpability in any action, what you're doing is you're literally taking someone else's persona and putting it on. And while this may be debatable, I believe that the persona he's thinking of is God's. He's saying when you do this, you are literally taking a mask that indicates that you are God. And you are putting that mask on and assuming the persona of God. I think you'll see why I came to that conclusion as we go. But let's look on. Section 2 of this, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if his son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then although you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him In everything treat others as you want to be as you want them to treat you for this fulfills the law and the prophets So what is Jesus saying here he is assuring us of our father's desire capacity and intent to provide for us. Now, it may seem like this is a hard hard turn from the previous passage on judging to get into this. But look, isn't the root of all our wrong judging, all our grasping, all our denying, all our refusal to deal with our shame, isn't it fear? Isn't it fear that we're going to be punished? Isn't it fear that we're going to go without? Isn't it the fear that there is something that we essentially need to live is going to be denied us? Think about it. Think about what drives often our anger, our judgment, our cynicism. Isn't it that fear? that we are going to be found lacking, that we're not gonna be able to provide for those we love, we're not gonna be able to provide, or that we're not gonna be provided for, that we're never gonna be able to make enough money. We're never gonna be able to make our spouse happy. We're never gonna be able to give our kids what they need to be decent human beings. We're never gonna have enough education to accomplish the goals that we want. Maybe it's that fear that in our old age we'll be left alone. There'll be no one there to care for us. Or is it that we fear that what we have is going to be taken from us? We fear that if we let our lo- guards down, that if we're, if we're not constantly striving and, and defending ourselves, somebody is just going to come in and take it. Fear drives all of these things. And so we shield ourselves, we guard ourselves, and knowing that the best defense is a good offense, we start attacking others. We start judging them. We start retreating further and further into the cocoon of control and ego, out of the fear that there will not be enough. Jesus knows that. That's why immediately after judging, he says, don't fear. Look, God is good. God loves you. There is an abundance of God that will never run out. Everything you need has already been provided to us, is being provided now, and will never fail to be provided to us in the future. Now we have to be careful whenever we talk like this because instantly we start thinking of preferences. We start thinking of things going the way that I want, when I want them, how I want them, from whom I want them. It's not the same thing. When when Peter later goes on, he says, everything has been been granted to us for life and for godliness through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very different kind of provision. But it is the ultimate provision. It is the one that we really need to be concerned about. It is the one that allows us not to take care of our body, what we eat or what we shall drink, as Jesus says. Everything that we need has been, is now, and will be provided by God. Well, let's look at the last part of this. He says, enter through the narrow gate, because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against the house, but it did not collapse because it had been founded on rock. And in typical Jewish rhetorical fashion, he turns this around and makes it a negative. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, the winds beat against the house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed by his teaching because he taught them like one who had authority, not like experts of the law. And this brings us to our last point here. Jesus claims authority here for himself that supersedes Moses, the Torah, and the Pharisees. I have wondered often what it means, this phrase, Jesus didn't teach like the experts of the law. And some people have thought that maybe that was stylistically, maybe he wasn't pompous, maybe he was humble. I'm sure he was, but he also taught with authority. Here's the thing. Jesus, we have to ask ourselves this. First of all, how did the experts of the law teach? To understand how Jesus was different, we have to understand first, how did the experts of the law teach? Well, if you are an expert of the law, what are you an expert in? The law. So an expert from the law essentially teaches from the law. They would say things like, well, Moses says this when faced with a question. Or faced with a situation, they would say, well, David said this. Well, Elijah did this. They they based, they oriented all of their authority within the text, within the law, within the tradition. Jesus didn't do that. Now, yes, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Yes, he referenced scripture. But so many times he says, I say unto you. I mean, we become so familiar with the words, we miss the audacity of the claim that Jesus is saying, I tell you, build your life on my words. Y'all, as I was preparing for this lesson, it was like I was being born again again. I've become so overly familiar with this that I've missed the audacity of the claim to authority that Jesus has. I heard someone say the other day, they said the the trinity of evangelicalism, of modern Protestant evangelicalism, is the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. Listen, I'll raise my hand. I've walked most of my Christian life as a bibliodolater. As someone who felt he had to defend the word, know the word, memorize the word, and use the word as the ultimate authority. And I'm here to tell you that makes me no different than an expert in the law. That makes me no different than the Pharisees. That's exactly what they did. Is they held the Torah in such reference that they denied the authority of the author of the Torah. I've done the same thing. I've held the Bible in such reverence, I have denied the authority of the one who wrote it. Because the Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Is the Bible necessary? Absolutely. Is it like any other book? Never. It is unique, inspired, divinely inspired, necessary for us, but it is not co-equal with God. And that's the crazy thing about Scripture is Jesus is consistently declaring in Scripture that he is above Scripture, that he has the right to rewrite Scripture, which he often does. We've seen that time and time again. Jesus will misquote Scripture from the Old Testament. He will change it. But even more than that, he declares that he is the authority y'all, I've had to repent of my Phariseeism of living my life like some expert of the law of because what it ultimately does then is it relocates authority to me. It moves me back towards the center. I say it's the Bible. I preach it's the Bible. The reality is it's me. It's my interpretation of it. It's my estimation. It's my thumbs up. It's my thumbs down on the word. And instead of submitting myself to Jesus, submitting myself to the Holy Spirit, trusting in the Father for provision, I trust in my own estimation. I trust in my own Yelp survey of passages. Four stars, five stars, ignore it. Go there, don't go there. Look at this one, don't look at that one. Choose this one first, rank them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Put them in order. It's all about me, it's all about my estimation. And I have had to repent because it is so insidious and it is so easy to do. And it is a denial of everything that I say I believe when I do that. Listen, y'all, this is what got Jesus killed. It wasn't that he healed lepers on the Sabbath. It wasn't that he gained disciples from fishermen and zealots. It was because he claimed to be the authority. He claimed to be the I am. He claimed to be greater than the prophets and the law. Our society puts a premium on leadership. There aren't many top sellers out there about being great followers, are there, Alex? Strategic leadership and planning, it's all about being a leader. Most of us like to think of ourselves as leaders as well. Or if we're not leaders, we like to think that if we were given the opportunity to lead, how great a leader we would be, right? Jesus smashes this way of thinking. Jesus is claiming to be the ultimate teacher and leader, and that means that even if we are providing leadership for others in some way, which most of us are, our primary role is that of follower. Jesus is claiming God as the ultimate provider and that means that even if we are providing for others in some way, which most of us are, our primary role is as trusting receiver. Any leading that we do must be formed by first following. Any providing that we do must be formed by first receiving. This radically reorients how we make judgments about everything. Donnie's message last week, where he talked about the attitude indicator, this, this radically reorients that. So, here's the questions, and they're questions I'm asking to you because I've asked them to myself throughout the week as I prepared for this. Have you submitted? to Jesus' proclamations and promises? Hey, it's one thing to accept Jesus as a great teacher. It's it's even one thing to accept Jesus as your Savior, as someone who keeps you from destruction, which we all need to do. But it is another thing entirely to submit to Jesus as Lord. To give up the right to say, well, I like that, don't like that. That one's good, that one's not. Four stars, five stars. Rank them one through ten. Give that up on the big things. We still have to do it, but we have to do it in a different way but to give that up and give that to Jesus. And if you haven't done that, will you do it? Will you give up your selfish judging and submit to the righteous and life-giving judgments of Jesus? Will you give up your suffocating fears and trust in the provision of God? Will you give up trying to manipulate and manage out of your own need to control? And at the center of who you are, submit to the one and only being who is true and trustworthy. I'm going to ask Alex and the team to come back up as we reflect on those questions because they're not rhetorical. I would love to look across here and say, well, of course y'all have. Of course Brian has. I've known the good dude for so long. Of course he has. Of course Becca has. Right? I'd love to say that, but listen, I've looked at my own heart this week, and the answer more often than not has been no. I haven't. Or I did once, but I was just slowly taking it back. Slowly, slowly just taking back that authority. Slowly just... Brought it back to myself. And yes, this is a question we have to answer once for all, but it's also a question we have to be answering always. Because the temptation is always for us to slide back into fear, to slide back into that lacking mentality, to slide back into grasping control, demanding things work our ways. so I want to ask you this we're not going to do an altar call although I did think about it I just want to ask you this as you come to take communion as you approach the table today say yes as you take the bread as you take the cup say yes say yes Jesus you're it Yes, Jesus, you're the authority. Yes, Jesus, I trust you. Yes, I accept this as from your hand. And I know that you have provided, you are providing, and you will provide. This table is open to everyone. There's no preferential ranking here. You don't approach this table and it looks at your image and swipes you left or swipes you right. As you approach, you don't see that thumbs up or down. There's no judgment here at this table in the purest sense of what we've talked about today. There is only welcome. There is only provision. There is only love. There is only acceptance. The only judgment left to be made is do we say yes to it? Do we receive it? Do we agree to it? So we'll take communion. We'll also worship because that's what we do. That's where our followership starts. That's where being a servant starts, is to worship something greater, someone greater than we are. So we train our hearts to be followers by singing praise and praying prayers. Likewise, we're going to take up an offering, and the reason we do that is because that's where our provision starts is in giving and receiving. That's what we do here is we, we, we take an offering because what it demonstrates is no one here comes without something to give and no one here is without lack. There's not a one of us in here that doesn't have a need. And we do that trusting that says, Jesus, you have met those. God, you will not give us rocks when we ask for bread and you won't give us snakes when we ask for fish. But we share the offering as an act of that worship. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for showing up. Um, Like I said, this week, I've had to repent of a lot of things. Uh, It's not something that's just going to happen overnight. It's a road I've got to walk. And I'm glad I can walk it out with y'all. So thank you.